DigiDay podcast. I'm Laura O'Reilly, DigiDay's senior correspondent, coming to the end of my stint filling in for your regular host, Brian Morrissey. So on to today's show, I'm very excited to introduce you to Donald Albright. Donald is the co-founder and president of Tenderfoot TV, which is an Atlanta-based production studio. It's behind hit podcasts like Up and Vanished, Atlanta Monster, To Live and Die in, in LA, and many, many more. Um, combined, the studio has reached more than 500 million downloads to date and tenderfoot tv as the name would suggest is increasingly inking deals beyond podcasting into tv and even recently striking a book deal so donald welcome to the digi day podcast thank you for having me i'm glad to be here and are you joining us from atlanta today is that where you've been hunkered down for the past few months yes i am i've been here for well, how long has it been now? It feels like this, you know, Groundhog's <laughs> Day. I, yeah, Monday or Saturday, I can't really tell. But yeah, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm in Atlanta from California originally, but I uh, moved here to Atlanta after, after um, I should go into college and then uh, just stayed. I uh, lo- love the city. Yeah, so I was going to ask you actually, so what kind of brought you to Atlanta? I know your, your background was in kind of music promotion, A&R. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm from the Bay Area, San Jose, California. Um, my mom actually moved to Atlanta when I was in high school. Um, so I went to San Jose State after graduating high school for uh, about a year and a half. And then at a certain point, I came to visit uh, my mom and uh, a friend of mine, his older brother, was going to Clark Atlanta University, uh, historically black college. Uh, I went to the campus I saw a beautiful campus, I saw beautiful women, and I said, I have to go here <laughs> one day. So I transferred, ended up transferring from San Jose State to Clark Atlanta, and then, you know, had half my family was already here, so ended up staying and just building uh, building out my business here, and it really started, started in the music industry in Atlanta. And in that time, you built up a pretty enviable client list, I have to say, so like Jay-Z, Outkast, Usher. Can you take us back to that time? What, what kind of brought you to um, setting up, is it D-Day Entertainment and some of the, yeah. perhaps the, the standout moments from that time? Yeah, I mean, so many. It's been, you know, 20 years. Um, it, it all happened very much like podcasting, kind of by accident. Um, I've always been into, I've always been an entrepreneur, started my first company when I was about 18 years old, uh, t-shirt, uh, comp- design company, um, printing company, um, which I had learned from, um, this nonprofit organization that I was working with. So I've always been business minded. My, my dad, um, had his own construction company or has his own construction company. So I've always seen him run his own business as well. Um, and, uh, when I got to Atlanta, we just were in this music scene that was very, um, it was just coming up. Like you had Outkast, you had Goody Mob, TLC, Usher. Um, and, we kind of just went to went to this party and met a few people and started networking, got a few business cards and decided, hey, we should just, you know, hang out with these people and, and start to promote and pass out flyers. And uh, the, the company actually started because we were losing money. I was the only one with a car, so it was costing gas money to go from point A to point B. So I said, hey, guys, we got to pool our money together to share on these losses. And then eventually someone said, hey, how much do you guys charge to put up those posters? And we got to come up with a number, and that's kind of the start of the business. But it evolved from there, obviously, from running a promotions company out of the dorm room at Clark Atlanta um, to um, you know taking artists like Master P and um, uh, yeah Jay Z, you know his concerts and promoting at his concerts, and then going on the road with artists like uh, Outkast and Goody Mob, uh, and that evolved into management. A&R and the, and the names started getting bigger and bigger. And not just the names bigger, but my relationship with the artists. At first, you're a little bit 
distanced from the creative process. You're only on the promotions and marketing side. Um, and then I became more involved in like the creation of albums, the management of talent, stuff like that. So it was, it's been great. I mean, I've traveled the world three times um, with artists and, you know, toured, you know, Africa with Chris Brown and the U.S. with uh, with Usher, um, you know, festivals all over the world. So uh, there's so many standout moments that um, it's it's fun to talk about because I forget a lot of them. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's like two, having two different um two different careers and two different lives almost, you know. I'm really interested in how you and your co-founder at Tenderfoot came to meet. So your co-founder is Payne Lindsay. And mm -hmm. in a prior life, he was in this hybrid, I don't even know how to describe them, but like rap rock bands called Right Side yeah. of the Tree. So I'm just yeah. really interested in like what forces combined for, for you two to meet and, and start working together. It was another interesting story. So we... Um, I knew I didn't know who Payne was, but I knew who the band was. Right, his right side of the tree. And Did you like them? I, yeah, the music was, yeah. was so. And it's all it's all about like how you get introduced to something. It really has a big impact of what you initially feel about it. So I was managing um, an artist named Lloyd who was on um, uh, what he was on. I think Atlantic or Universal at the time, but big R and B artist out of Atlanta, um, and he had a producer that knew Payne and, and his, um, the rest of his band, and they ended up collaborating and doing a song. So Payne had a song with a very popular Atlanta artist. So I knew the band from, from that perspective and liked the music. And then probably three years later, um, or more actually, probably like five years later, I got a, I get an email from a guy named Payne Lindsay I'm, I've kind of moved on in my career and I'm managing a new artist that's on, on, on the verge of like breaking through. And I get an email from Payne saying, hey, I'm, my name is Payne Lindsay. Um, I sh I'm a music video director and I love to shoot a video for your artist. And I didn't know who he was. I didn't recognize the name. But a friend of mine who was having dinner with me at the time, uh, I read the email and he said, oh, that's Payne from Right Side of the Tree. I was like, oh, okay, well, Maybe I'll give this guy a shot because before I wasn't sure if I was going to, you know, have we already had people to do our videos. But because of that connection, I already knew, knew kind of who he was like, OK, that's that's cool. There's, you know, let, let's try it out. So we shot one video for a couple thousand dollars. Um, turned out to be great. He was able to I wasn't quite sure, like how good he would be. So I kind of was forcing my creative ideas on him. But and he, and he made them come out great. And then we did that a couple of times. And then I said, man, this guy's good. I should probably just let him running with the creative ideas and have him bring the video back with his full vision. And when he did that, the videos got even better. So I just knew like this, we had a really good working relationship of like being able to hear each other, right? And being able to collaborate creatively and then respecting each other from a creative and business standpoint. So it was, at, it was like the foundation of us later becoming business partners. And I mean, neither of you had any podcasting experience at this time. So what made you dive into this business i mean it's kind of funny that you called yourself tenderfoot tv but started out in podcasting so how did that come about yeah so that's that that was um <laughs> i have had zero um knowledge of the industry i knew what podcasting was um to an extent i guess pain had never made a podcast i had never listened to a podcast um and he listened to serial and was like okay this is this is a i i this is a great way to tell a story, but it didn't dawn on him to make a podcast. He wanted to make a docuseries, um, something like, you know, the jinx, make it a murder. Just, so he was just sitting at home one day 
probably, you know, working on a, a new music video that he wasn't inspired by anymore because the industry was kind of getting monotonous um, and less creative. And he was like, I should be making Jinx. I should be making Making a Murderer. So he started to go down that path and he called me and said, hey, I want to go down this path of making this true crime documentary, something you want to do with me. And I was like, sure, let's let's do it. Because I was kind of burnt out as well, just from managing artists and then, you know, rinse and repeat successful. And then, you know, managing talent is always difficult because you can't control people and what success will do to them. Right. So I was having some trouble with that. So I was glad to try to do something else. And then eventually Payne, we, Payne realized, look, we haven't, I don't know anyone in Hollywood, neither do you. We probably should draw this idea back a little bit and do this in audio form based on what Serial did. And then I was like, okay, cool. I still hadn't listened to a podcast. <laughs> so, and then finally, um, he, he finished episode, like some episodes. He sent them to me. And the first podcast I ever listened to was Up and Vanished. Um, so then he said, look, man, if we're going to do this for real, I need you to dive in, go listen to Serial, and go listen to some other podcasts. So when I listened to Serial, that opened up my eyes of like, oh, wow, I get what this, how, how great this could be just in audio form. Um, and the name Tenderfoot TV really is a reflection of our initial intent of trying to make a docuseries for TV. So, so let's go back then to so 2016, and it's the first podcast you work on together. So um, for those that haven't listened to it, Up and Vanished is this um, true crime podcast about the disappearance of a teacher in Georgia. And so you hadn't even listened to a podcast before. Your first one blows up and becomes this massive hit. Um, and it's been downloaded now, you know, hundreds of millions of times. I mean, what, what do you put that down to? Did, was there any of your kind of like prior... I mean, it, it wasn't, you know, it was, it was the two of you, but from your kind of business acumen side, did your prior kind of marketing and A&R experience come in handy? Was it um, just luck, right place at right time? And then obviously the content itself, but, um, you know, con discovery with podcasts is, is probably the mm -hmm. hardest thing. It's probably harder than making them. Um, so, yeah, oh. what, what do you put the success down to? Yeah, it's a combination of things that um, really happened um all in the span of about a couple of weeks. Um, to go back a little bit um, to the point you made about, like, or the question you asked about kind of our prior experience, 100%, both mine and Payne's prior experience in the music industry, um, him just being so creative, um, but also being a producer, also being a director, also being a writer. Um, we've interfaced with um, consumers and made con products for consumers to, uh, to consume, right? If it's a video, we kind of have to understand how to make that video, what people want to see, what's going to grab their attention. And from a marketing perspective, you know, that's what I've been doing for promotions and marketing for 20 years. So taking what we've learned in the music industry over the years, and this is the, the standard and level that you had to market and promote in the music industry, very aggressive, very innovative. So we took all of that into podcasting and we, um, we really implemented some of the things that we learned over, over those, you know, past years. And what, what really set us up, you know, Payne used his video directing background and shot a, a visual um, that we put out first that looked like it was for Netflix or for HBO. It looked like it was a docu-series. And then at the very end, you see like, listen on Apple Podcasts. So it's like, oh, this is a podcast, but it was a, a, an interesting way to present it, right? It wasn't an audio um, trailer, it was a video trailer. Uh, so we did that, we bought some ads in this very small town of 3,000 people where this crime took place. It's like, if you're gonna get someone to listen, maybe the people who know about it. And that really lit a fire that spread like crazy over the first, um, you know, five to 10 weeks of the, of the series. 
and um, we made we we gambled, we bet on ourselves, and there was an opportunity to buy an ad for about four thousand um, dollars on this podcast called The Breakdown from the AJC, which is an, huh. another Atla- um, Atlanta true crime series. So we're like, you know, we didn't know anyone else. We didn't know, and, and Payne had the idea, like, this is this is the same audience. We need them to know about our podcast. And, you know, I it was going to be like four grand. I didn't have $4,000 to like just, you know, to give on an ad. So we negotiated the price down. I had like, three grand on a credit card available. I swiped the credit card for like 2,500 for this one ad. And it just so happens that the week that that ad ran on the breakdown, Apple decided to feature us in new and noteworthy, you know, just the new and noteworthy box on their, on their app. And that release was sparked because Steve Wilson from Apple loved our cover art and he tweeted about it and was like giving us props about our cover art and we didn't know Steve at all. We didn't know anyone at Apple. And they just decided, you know, I like this cover art. A couple weeks later, he featured it. The ad in um, the breakdown ran that same time. And then from there, I swear, like, it just blew up. And it never it never stopped. And we just started, like, you know, 5,000 downloads a week, 10,000. And then at 10,000, we started to monetize it um, a bit, you know, whatever you can for that for those download numbers. And then we just went from, it seemed like we went from 10,000 downloads a week to 100 to 500 and then to a million. And it was just, it was just crazy. It sounds like the stars definitely aligned. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, so Tenderfoot's gone on, you, you've produced a slate of, um, I mean, all sorts of different shows, but particularly kind of true crime podcasts seem to be um, some of the ones that have been the most popular, at least so far. Uh, I'm interested because neither you or Payne, um, a journalist, but you're kind of exploring these very kind of complex, clearly um, sensitive topics, you know, opening up cold cases and, and so on. Um, what have you learned about kind of journalism a- along the way and, um, you know, it, kind of investigative journalism? And are there, are there any kind of early mistakes now that you'd maybe avoid or have, have learned from for, for future episodes? Oh, man, so many mistakes. Where do I, where do I begin? Um this is not like what we did is not easily cannot easily be repeated um and probably shouldn't in in most cases we we could have done this a hundred times and failed the other ninety nine um the case you know the the so much had to be right and and we still made mistakes and and were able to be successful um some of the mistakes were just not understanding how what we were doing or what Payne was doing behind a microphone or in a city was going to be um, received. Like, how is that going to be accepted by people listening to it? Because yeah, think about it. Again, we didn't know, we didn't plan on making money off this. We didn't plan on building a business around this. It was just a guy saying what he wanted to say, being as, as, you know, being, understanding the sensitivities of the case, but not understanding, should I talk about it this way? Um, Am I, you know, what's the best way to, to talk about a, a a female victim? Um, and I think we did a good job there, but um, just we weren't naturally thinking that millions of people will hear this and judge us by it. Um, I'll give you an example of something that we did. It was the f- season finale of episode of, of the, uh, the first season, and we did a live show. And you have to like understand the, the you understand, like read the room, right? 
So you're you're at a live show. These are all super fans that have come to a venue to sit in the dark and listen to about an hour and a half worth of like two two finale episodes. And in between that, we came up on stage and we were giving away these cowboy cookies, which is like this inside joke about Payne's mom. Payne's grandma makes these cowboy cookies. It's part of the show. It has nothing to do with the crime. It's just something that happened during the series. So we're giving away stuff. And then the host who's hosting the event for us starts asking the crowd like questions about the case. And um, like, who was the first investigator from the GBI that was on the case? And then someone would answer. And then that person would get like these cowboy cookies that everybody wanted. We put that live episode, worked great in the room, put that live episode into the feed. And now someone listening to it in their car, you know, somewhere across the country is like, I can't believe you're using, like doing trivia, like murder trivia. And we're like, wow, I see what you mean. You weren't there in the room. It didn't feel like that. But and we weren't like trivializing the, the death of anyone. It was just like, who knows the most about this case? Like random details. Uh, but it, it came off bad on, you know, on through your, um, you know, through your car speakers. It sounds different than when you're in the room as a super fan of a show. Um, so that's something that we that we learned is you always have to be extra careful and understand all the different places that people are are hearing this and what and the and what they're thinking about it. And then you also just you have to be smart and learn from other people's mistakes as well, not just your own. Yeah, I think that makes sense, especially I guess a podcast. It's you know attitudes towards things can change over time, or something that didn't seem particularly relevant at the time blows up as this hot button issue, and um, you know it can be received in a different way. So that that does mm-hmm. make sense. Um, I wanted to talk about kind of fairly early on. You formed this partnership with Stuff Media. So Stuff is the um, the company that runs the How Stuff Works podcast. It's owned by mm-hmm. iHeart Media, um, and you recently signed up to another kind of multi project deal with with iHeart uh, last month, I think. And I'm just interested in, in kind of how that partnership kind of works, and particularly in the early days. Early days, you you already had this runaway mega hit anyway. Why not just go at it alone? Yeah, so I think it it it, it started because so we kind of a lot of things just worked out for us. Right, we planted a lot of seeds that we didn't think were going to grow, and they ended up growing. So when we were looking for office space, when we were because Payne made the first half of the of Up and Vanish out of his you know closet and apartment, right. Um, we started looking for office space and we found a, a place we could barely afford that was in the same building that Stuff Media was in. And we were like, hey, if that building is good enough for them, clearly it's good, good enough for us. So we just got a got a small two-person um, office in like this shared co-working space on like the seventh floor. And they were on the, um, they were like four floors underneath this or something. And one day we ended up, our pain is running into um, Jason Hoke from Stuff Media on the elevator. Um, and they start talking. And then, uh, actually, no, what happened was Apple came to visit How Stuff Works. When Apple was visiting How Stuff Works, they said, oh, yeah, we're after you guys were going upstairs to visit Tenderfoot. And then they were like, oh, we didn't know Tenderfoot was in the building. That's what How Stuff Works said. So that's how they found out we were there. Then Payne ran into Jason on the elevator um, and they said, hey, we, you know, we should we should do something together. And then we all uh, they start talking. I had I had previously told Payne about the idea for Atlanta Monster. Um, I had you know, grown up in Cal- even though I was in California, far from Atlanta. I grew up knowing about the Atlanta child murders. Um, Payne, who grew up miles away from where some of the murders happened, had known nothing about it. And I think it was 
you know, just uh, uh, cultural differences um, and as well as just generational, right? Like these were black victims in the late 70s, early 80s. Payton is a white guy born in 87, you know what I mean? So far after this was already over. Um, so when I told him about that, he met with Jason and Jason told him about the same thing. And so they, it's like we had independently had the same idea. So it just made sense. Like we should just work together on this. But for us, it made sense because of what you said earlier, you know, we're like, we aren't journalists. We aren't a podcast company. So for us to be able to partner on our, um, like really our second, uh, our third podcast, but our, our like second, like big launch uh, to partner with a very credible company made a lot of sense for us to learn from them, to work with other producers, see how other people, you know, make their podcasts and implement that into our company. So we, we, we learned a ton making that podcast and, you know, continue to make podcasts since, uh, since then. And so there, there were obviously just two of you back in the day. How many people work for Tenderfoot now? Now it's uh, eight employees and myself and Payne. So it's 10 of us uh, total. And back then, yeah, it was just me and Payne. And then our first employee was Payne's brother. Um, and then our second employee was a former listener who just who emailed us. <laughs> so it really was such an organic growth uh, in his company, like people who were either close by that we trusted that we just pulled in. Or people who just, you know, were just felt right. It was like an organic fit. Even our our agent was um, a listener who who reached out before the podcast blew up and said, "Hey, this is this is a great project. I I, I love it. Um, have you thought about making this into a TV show?" And you're like, "Absolutely. <laughs> That's, that was the whole the whole goal of it." But so yeah, everyone in the team really just came together, um, you know, for authentic reasons. And, and can you describe the the business model a little bit more? So how much of your business is kind of I guess, licensing versus advertising, for example? Um, yeah, it's really all advertising. So you, um, it's a tough business. You know, you it can be very lucrative if you're very successful. You can have a very good podcast and not have any, uh, not get the traction, right? You can have a podcast just as good as anything that we make. But like you said earlier, that discovery element, like how do you break a podcast? You can make one. How do you break one? And if you, if you can't break that podcast, you can't get the listeners. If you can't get the listeners, you can't sell advertising. You're selling advertising against those listeners. It's not about your inventory. It's about um, you can have 30 episodes. If no one's listening, no one's advertising. One episode that everyone's listening to, you can monetize that you know, based on your listenership. So the model is ad-based, um, and it's, um, it's, it's an up-and-down market, and it's a scary market. You know, because you never know what's going to go on in in the world, like like now in the economy, um, that's going to affect um, not necessarily podcast listening, but it could affect you know podcast spending from an advertising perspective. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk about how you've been kind of managing the last um, few months. So, I mean, I guess for podcasting, you know, things were ticking along quite nicely, and there was this this stat out there that podcast ad revenue was going to reach a billion this year mm -hmm. um, for the market as a whole. Um, and then the pandemic came along. So, I mean, d did it impact listener habits though? I know I, I heard kind of lots of anecdotal evidence that you, you know, you lose that commuter listener. Um, but on the other hand, maybe people binge more. I don't know. Like what, what did you see happen? It's interesting. I talked to, you know, I talked to five different people and I'll get five different answers, some variation there. Mm. <clears throat> um, I think for us, we've, we've seen maybe a 10% drop. I think, but it's, it's also may have to do a lot with the kind of shows that you're making, right? Like, are people going to consume true crime, something that's dark 
in a time where they're, you know, where there's all this negativity going on in the world, not just with the pandemic, just politically, um, social justice, so much going on. And it's also our people not listening to Up and Vanished, for example, but they are listening to the CNN podcast on coronavirus, right? They're still listening to podcasting, but they're just, their attention is diverted somewhere else. Are they listening to more, um, you know, Pod Save the People because they're now are, are into social justice? So I haven't really, I don't really know overall if it's, if it's fair to say like the industry took a 10% hit or 20% hit. Some shows are taking 20% hit. Some are taking none. Some are increasing. You know what I mean? So it's it's a little bit based on content, I believe. Um, the listener habits, I think pi- podcast listeners are the best consumers in the marketplace. And they're the most loyal consumers in the marketplace, consumers of the products that you advertise and consumers of your content. And I think that there's nothing that will stop them from listening to the shows that they love. So if they used to listen in the car, now they're listening when they're going on a walk. Now they're listening when they're doing yard work or you know when they put the kids to bed. Um, so I think I, I, I wouldn't say that it's as simple as, oh, no one's commuting. When I look at our data, most of our podcasts are consumed on um, desktop or um, laptop, not in cars. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of, um, but it's different for every every podcast, every type of listener. So, um, but it's it's been it's been difficult more so for us on the the advertising side. So even though the the let's say the numbers are steady, and but the advertisers are thinking people aren't spending money, so I'm not going to spend money advertising to them. So we have the same amount of episodes, same amount of downloads, just a scared um, sellers market in terms of you know the 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 ad sellers. Um, or buyer, scared buyer's market on the consumer side and sellers, you know. So that's the bigger issue. And then we do a lot of in-the-field production. You know, we don't do a lot of talk-style shows where we have two hosts sitting in behind microphones and just doing a lot of crosstalk or topical conversation. We do a lot of in-the-field, knocking on doors, sitting in people's living rooms, getting the, the getting to the story. Um, that's been affected by the pandemic, obviously, because of travel, because of just the comfort level of of people just being in close proximity to each other. We've done some of it and been able to do it, you know, in a safe way with smaller teams. Um, but we've had to push productions back. We've had to focus more on pre-production. Um, but we did release season two of Radio Rental during the pandemic, and we're launching um, a new project um, in about a week with, um, that'll be our first like new release under uh, during the pandemic. And just want to take you back to, to the advertising side of things because I mean it's it's no secret like ad spending as a whole took a massive slump during the pandemic um and depending on I guess what side of media you are in um there have been some kind of green shoots of recovery as we as we entered the summer um particularly the, the digital media businesses obviously stuff like print is going to take a bit of a longer time to recover um so you said if, if kind of listening was down 10%, what happened to ad spending? And I guess with all the caveats that, yeah, perhaps people don't want to advertise against murder and mayhem at the moment, um, but also just because the medium's different. Yeah, I mean, we've definitely seen slower builds in terms of like what advertising people are spending into into shows, um, you know, where I, it's, 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 it's really hard to say. Um, because the the market has always been a little bit uh, volatile, I guess, where you you think you have a show that's going to launch and it's going to be sold out, and it's only you know fifty percent sold. So much of this industry is 
still for us, a company with 500 million downloads and, you know, six number one podcasts, um, they don't always just jump right in and say, oh, you have this new project coming. I, I want it, uh, you know, lock me in. It's more like you still have to put out an episode sometimes where you have, you know, maybe two two ads, but not all four sold. And then they'll say, okay, wow, the numbers are there for Up and Vanished season two or whatever, or for this new To Live and Die in LA podcast where it's, it has all the makings of a hit, but we're going to wait to see how episode one does and then we're going to come in. So we always get so much more um, advertiser interest in like our the second half of our season than the first half of the season. Um, but I think a lot of it has to do with the, the style of show we make as well. You know, a show like Serial, um, you know, a Serial season, I believe it was three you know, they they were selling that show a, a year before it came out and they had full episodes done. They had all like we're a much smaller company. We 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 do a lot of in-season production because we, we like our stories to evolve and be impacted by our listener um, and to not not feel dated. So um, for us, we don't have a lot of the episodes baked in and here's send you know, here's all 10 episodes. We send it to one advertiser and we try to get them to come on as a title sponsor. We haven't done a lot of that yet. We're moving in that direction, but the style of shows that we make have been making have, have made it harder to do that. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I guess moving to more of like a TV model. I know there were the you know, podcasts up front and so on. Um, mm-hmm. You touched upon this a little bit earlier, but um, we mentioned kind of amid the pandemic over the last few months, we've also been witnessing um, just huge societal changes watching um you know following the the killing of of george floyd and the the conversation it sparked worldwide about racial injustice and i'm interested because the majority of tenderfoot's podcasts are about crime so Mm. i'm just interested to get a sense of how you've been touching upon issues like police violence um but also kind of elevating voices that that often go unheard um i guess particularly you know, this year, but I, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. in your history as well. Yeah. I mean, I guess this, I think it's, it's good that, you know, the dynamic of our company is diverse already, right? You have two owners, one white, one black. Um, we have uh, our most senior producer is a, is a woman. Um, we have uh, two other producers on our team that are female. Um, and we, so we feel like we have a company that's a wide range of thought, generations, ethnic um, uh, makeup. And we try to bring that bring that through. And early on, it's a little bit more difficult because we're, we're not building a company. We're like telling one story at a time. But I think, you know, we told uh, Up and Vanished and we put out a podcast called Sworn and then we put out Atlanta Monster. So in one podcast, we talked about, you know, 29 young black victims. Um, and I think that that really helped me define how the vision I had for the company. And that's it aligned with where Payne's vision uh, was as well, which is that we don't just want to get stuck telling the same stories that everyone else is telling. We want to tackle, the stories have to be interesting, right? Like that's, that goes without saying, but we can't, we have to tackle the stories that other people aren't telling and, and also address why those stories aren't being told. So there's, there's, we don't want to tell stories that are strictly about like, this racist thing that happened but if race plays a part in it we can't omit that from the story and we have to search twice as hard to tell the story of a missing black victim because it's twice as hard to get coverage on that missing black victim so it's harder to find that story right if i google search a missing person um 
what I'm finding are people who have been reported on. And if they're reporting less on black victims or black missing women, for example, then it's twice as hard for me to find them. So we have to work twice as hard in order to even find a story to tell. So we just immediately, I think Atlanta Monster just opened our eyes to like how not just the kind of stories that you want to tell, but how impactful the stories could be. You know, Up and Vanish was able to play a role in um, two arrests being made in a decade old cold case. Uh, so we're yeah we're 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 doing our part and we're we're trying to do more. Mm. Can you talk just a, a little bit about again amid pandemic you you released um, looking for Latoya as well. Oh, right, right, yeah. That was I mean I'm a huge fan of Issa Rae and Insecure on HBO. Um, that was an interesting one. We we have done some scripted um, stuff in the past, but not nothing that was a completely scripted episode or series. Radio Rental was kind of a hybrid that has some scripted elements. But this was our first time making something start to finish fully scripted. Um, and I was able to work with um, the writers on the Insecure uh, series, which was um, a great experience. And so Looking for Latoya is kind of the show within the show on HBO Insecure. So while you're watching the show Insecure, the actors are watching the show called Looking for Latoya on on their TV screens, right, in, inside the show. And Looking for Latoya is about a missing black girl um, and this... Uh, kind of like citizen sleuth who's trying to find out what happened to her. And just so you know, if you're not familiar with Insecure, it's, it's a, um, it's a very, uh, it's comedy meets, uh, you know, social commentary and uh, black culture, um, kind of like all wrapped in one, uh, brilliant show. And so looking for the toy is a parody of true crime. Mm. And it's a parody kind of within a parody because We've seen true crime parody before. We've never seen true crime parody that also pokes fun at how um, the criminal justice system and how the media as a whole uh, overlooks missing black women. So that's what this is about. So Latoya is missing and it's about no one's looking for her um, except for this one, you know, this one, uh, (laughs) this woman who works at the Burlington Coat Factory and on her spare time is deciding to go out to LA and look for this missing black girl. So it's, it's, it's very funny. Um, it's, but it, you know, it makes you laugh about a real situation. And I think then it brings it all together at the end. Um, Issa Rae comes, uh, there's like a, a PSA for the black and missing foundation, which is dedicated to, um, finding our missing, you know, black and brown people, um, in America. And we donated, um, with um, Tenderfoot, uh, Issa Rae's company, Radio and HBO, donated $30,000 to the Black and Missing Foundation. So, you know, we're, we're trying to tell these stories, get people to understand them and relate to them in whatever way we can, and then also um, actually support in, in, in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, you're working with, with HBO on that. Um, I mean, there's, there's clearly a, a very big kind of tech and kind of big media, I guess, land grab for podcast businesses at the moment um you know you've you've been working with iheart for a while it seems like spotify is leading the pack as far as um land grabs are concerned you know joe rogan and kim kardashian and ringer and, and gimlet um and it's kind of interesting that i think audible is is kind of ramping up its efforts as well mm-hmm. i mean where, where do you think all this MA is going to shake out do you think um because it seemed like pod- podcasting was very distributed and very independent, very small, and then um, you know it's it's consolidating and becoming bigger. How do you think it's going to evolve? And um, I'm also interested. Have, have you had knocks on the door from those kind of companies as well? Um, some knocks on the door, mostly about collaboration and you know joint ventures. Some early conversations about 
um, potential investment. Um, but it's, uh, you know, nothing as far down the road. I think we're, we're comfortable where we are now. I think it, it, I, I do look at other companies and kind of see how they operate. Like I'd love to go from 10 employees to 50 and have, you know, an infusion of $30 million to really tell, tell these stories on, you know, times 10. Um, but I think, you know, we're on a, we have a nice growth in like how many podcasts we're able to do and work on at a time. And we're, we're growing slow, slow enough or at a, at a good pace for us where we're not, not too fast, not too slow. Um, and it's, but I'm, I'm, my goal is to work with all these companies and that gives me a better sense of what, what are their long-term plans, short-term plans, who are the people, the people make the companies. Um, and so working with iHeart, I've got, the, got a chance to know them from top to bottom. Love, love the company, love the employees. We have a great relationship with, um, Cadence 13, which was, um, is now owned by Intercom, another broadcast radio uh, company. Um, we haven't had a chance to work with Spotify yet, but you know, we've, we've, several conversations, um, cross promotion, stuff like that with them. Um, we are working with Audible on one project and talking about maybe doing some additional ones. I'm not exactly sure, but I know Amazon Music is getting into the, the space. Um, I believe even outside of Audible, even though it's all the same family. So that'll be interesting to see kind of um, how they come in. There's only so many companies, right? Like there's Gimlet, now that's gone. Mm. You know, there's House of Works, boom, that's gone. There's the big shows, Rogan. There's The Ringer, that's gone. Um, so there's, you said like the, the land is being grabbed up and, um, eventually I think they're going to get to, you know, where's, what's Wondery going to do? You know, pineapples now grabbed up by intercom. What's, what's Tenderfoot going to do? Right. And I think for us, it's just about still being able to tell the right stories. Um, and that's the beauty of podcasting is the freedom. Um, mm. I guess one thing that I learned when, so, you know, we start out trying to make a TV show. We ended up making that TV show up and vanished with oxygen. Um, and one thing that that taught me was, taught me how much, our, it made me remember how much I love podcasting, making a TV show, right? <laughs> because the, the the freedom of that we had making up and vanish the podcast, we did not have making up and vanish the TV show. And for, for valid reasons, right? I mean, like there there's um, some valid reasons I'll say, you know, there's network protocols, there's, there's legal things you have to deal with where we're pretty much, you know, out here running and gunning as a podcast company, trying to be responsible and respectful. And we have lawyers that review everything, but a lot more freedom. My fear with the big buys and the companies is that now everything that you do is going to be through the lens of a corporate entity through there and not just them having, you know, legal control over what you can and can't say, which I can, you know, in some cases I, I understand, but creative control. And that's something we'll always push back on, um, no matter who our partners are. So, I, I see, I see. So that, I guess that's the, the the part of it that could be problematic. The part that's is is going to be, I think, great is that this will be a viable industry that people can survive off of, right? That they don't have to do it in their part you know, as a as a side job. Um, and I think. We, we have to get there if you want this to evolve into something that's taken seriously. I mean, a billion dollars in revenue, which was the target for this year, is great, but it's, you know, nothing compared to what other mediums are are doing, right? So we have to grow this. We have to grow it responsibly. Um, we have to put creative first. Um, and I think we can do that. I think bringing the, the money will also bring the creators that are making the Netflix series and all that, like bringing them into podcasting. I'm having these conversations already with, with, you know, 
very credible, respectable companies that want to do want to get into podcasting. And it's funny because they're talking to us about getting into podcasting and we're like, so tell us about this, how to make an independent film or, <laughs> you know, how to get into, you know, a high level premium docuseries. Right. So, you know, it's, that's the, that's classic, you know, you're yeah. successful in one thing, you want to get into something else. And that's, you know, works both ways. <laughs> uh, exciting times for sure. Well, we're all out of time. And thanks so, so much for your time today, Donald. Really enjoyed our, our conversation. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, that's a wrap for my few weeks moonlighting on the Digi Day podcast. It's been really fun. Hope they'll let me back on. As always, please rate and share this episode if you enjoyed it. And up next week, Brian will be back and he's speaking to Ben Cousin, who's the co-CEO of Venn, which is a new video game at Entertainment News Network. Mm-hmm.